Hi, everyone. Welcome to Osteobite. Thank you so much for joining us this Thursday. We'll get everyone a few seconds to get settled in our virtual room. My name is Christina Iptoma, and I am mom to Osteoangel Dillon and director of scientific programs at MIT Agents. And today on Osteobite, we are talking to Dr. Nulay Shaw from Nationwide Children's Hospital. Dr. Shaw will be discussing Cabomain, an open clinical trial studying cabozantinib as a maintenance therapy for osteosarcoma. Thanks so much, Dr. Shaw, for joining us on Osteobites today. We are thrilled to have you. And thank you also to Walker, um, who is a member of our junior advisory board and an osteo warrior for joining us as our panelists today. A little bit more about our guest today before we get started. Dr. Nilai Shaw is a clinician scientist and associate professor in the Division of Hematology Oncology BMT at Nationwide Children's Hospital. His primary clinical focus is on pediatric solid tumors, including neuroblastomas, tumors of the kidneys, and rare solid tumors of childhood. His research focuses on the molecular drivers with pediatric cancers and how new treatment approaches can be taken to better target those drivers. In this role, he works to identify new uses of currently available anti-cancer treatments, including drugs originally developed for use against cancer in adults, and he serves as Associate Director for Liver Tumor, Kidney Tumor, and germ Cell, and Neuroblastoma Targeted Therapies. And is currently the sponsor and study principal investigator for the Cobblemine Trial, a Phase two study evaluating the efficacy of the oral anti-cancer agent cabozantinib as a maintenance therapy for ultra-high-risk solid tumors, which we'll be learning more about today. He also serves as co-director of the Cancer Genetics Program, and this program serves to advance the use of genetic and genomic evaluations for the benefits of patients. And in this role, he sees patients in the cancer predisposition clinic for evaluation, surveillance, and management of patients with genetic alterations that predispose to cancer development. He also consults with patients for physician oncology, partnering with the Institute for Genomic Medicine to identify therapeutic approaches based on patient tumor and germline genomics. Um, so thanks so much for joining us again, Dr. Shah, and some other announcements and reminders before we get started. Um, we have a bi-monthly virtual tumor board for osteosarcoma, which we affectionately call Turbo. And our next meeting um, is November 8th, so it's coming up pretty soon. It's going to be our last meeting of 2023 until we meet again in January of 24. Um, and if you are a clinician or a researcher with an interest in osteosarcoma, you are welcome to join. Um, and I'll put some more information in the chat um, about that if you're interested. Um, and then some exciting announcements, our 2024 cycle for our MIB research program Outsmarting Osteosarcoma is um, open as of today. The application is live now. Um, it's available on Proposal Central. Um, applications are due on January 26th. Um, we'll also be sharing a short 15-minute um, video overview just about the application and review process. Um, I think that will actually go up on our YouTube channel um, by early next week. Um, so we'll share more information about that as well. Um, but if you have any questions on Outsmarting, feel free to email me. And um, we are now also accepting um, app chats for Factor 2024. So that's our annual Osteosarcoma Conference. Um, in 2024, we're going to be in Cleveland, June 20th to 22nd. So save the date on your calendars. And um, we've opened up abstract submissions as well. And those will be due on January 12th. And I'll put some more information in the chat about um, both of those opportunities. Um, but uh, really uh, looking forward to um, people applying for both of those things. Um, so let's see with that. I'm going to hand it over to Walker to introduce himself. Hi, uh, yeah, my name is Walker. As 
Christine already along this more leaving advisory board vice president and also an Osseo warrior. I was diagnosed in 2018 and then have been NED since 2020. Um, I'm really excited to hear about today's presentation. So Dr. Shaw, you can take it from there. Cool. So um, thank you all for for having me. It's it's really an honor, particularly as someone who doesn't uh, specifically live in in Circle Online day to day, though uh, you know a, a lot of respect for that and. Um, and clearly disease with a lot of needs. So, um, so we're talking about uh, our study today, Kibamine, um, and uh, as previous Stephen said, it's a phase two study for Kibazatinib as a maintenance agent um, for uh, prevention of progression or recurrence in high-risk pediatric solid tumors. And we run this out of our uh, next consortium, which is uh, the consortium that um, is, is housed here at Nationwide Children's uh, and led by our fantastic clinical research office, um, and uh, we have uh, institutions uh, uh, nationally. We have a few international uh, sites as well. Unfortunately, they're uh, um, for for logistical reasons not part of this study. But we'll kind of talk through where the study is available as well. So, um, just a couple of disclosures on my side. Um, I have served on a couple uh, single event advisory boards for Fennec Bayer, Muse World Meds. Those are not necessarily ongoing relationships, though. Uh, Exelixis has been a very generous uh, collaborator and funding source for this study. Uh, they don't provide any direct financial compensation uh, to me, uh, and I do uh, serve as the sponsor uh, for the study. Uh, today, I want to talk about the background and rationale that we had for the study. Um, the objectives of the study, uh, kind of a, a, big, a big overview of how we run the protocol and how frequently we see the patients um, and how the drug is given, uh, potential toxicities, then how to contact us if you're interested. So. We all know this, that despite advances in peds oncology, uh, solid tumors have lagged, and there are many pediatric solid tumors where survival remains really dismal. Uh, metastatic Ewing sarcoma and osteosarcoma from frontline, um, relapsed refractory neuroblastomas, certainly, and many would argue that even frontline neuroblastoma isn't exactly uh, knocking it out of the park, um, and then relapsed refractory sarcomas and Wilms tumors as well. Uh, and traditional approaches, uh, which are still generally frontline, chemotherapy, radiation, and surgery, uh, particularly in these settings, can induce short-term remissions, but inevitably you, you are facing a relapse. Um, and we're not happy about that. So what can we do about that? So there are many new classes of drugs that are being developed now uh, in that regard, monoclonal antibodies, cell therapies, epigenetic modifiers, and then uh, tyrosine kinase inhibitors. So uh, small molecule per, um, uh, drugs that uh, are blocking um, the signaling cascades, uh, and obviously there are many other um, uh, small molecule drugs as well, but you know, for broad strokes for today's purpose, talking about TKIs. Uh, and this is, um, and many of these drugs uh, are generally better tolerated uh, than chemotherapy, particularly in the long term, as you're not necessarily getting the mutagenic effects that are at risk with conventional chemotherapy. And the biggest challenge in, in pediatric tumors has been that unlike in adult cancers, there oftentimes is uh, not a single identified genetic driver, uh, certainly as seen in osteosarcoma uh, or neuroblastoma, um, uh, or the driver cannot be easily targeted. So certainly in Ewing's, uh, in Ewing's sarcoma, uh, the EDUSFLY1 uh, translocation fusion protein uh, is not, uh, has not been significantly targeted up to this point. Um, certainly in rhabdos, uh, the um, Fox-Foxo fusions are, are very difficult to target. So, in the absence of identifying a drug that can target a uh, genetic driver, it's hard to develop drugs for our pediatric cancers. And so then most drugs 
uh, at this point have not been developed for pediatric cancers primarily. This is changing and I will give uh, many of the companies that credit. So that leads us to cabozantinib. So cabozantinib is what we call a multi-targeted TKI. Instead of driving a particular single mutation, for example, you know, Gleevec for uh, chronic myelogenous leukemia, starting BCR able, uh, instead cabozantinib intentionally targets many pathways. Uh, it targets Axel, VEGFR2, and TEC, and these are pro-angiogenic pathways, the so pathways that supply blood supply to uh, to the cancers. And so uh, uh, by starving uh, the cancers, you hope to prevent them to, from being able to grow. Uh, Cabo can also target RET-MET, and that prevents uh, proliferation, metastasis, and viability. And I also circum in particular, MET, uh, sometimes also see it called CMET, uh, uh, is known to be kind of an active pathway in, in many osteosarcomas. And there's a lot more data now, too, that shows that in uh, more, uh, there are more recent data showing effects on tumor microenvironment. And so these are the cells that are being recruited uh, by the cancers to support them. Um, basically, they, they can take the normal uh, cells that are in the body and reprogram them to uh, support the growth of the tumor and defend them in many ways from the rest of the immune system of the body too. So this is a major barrier to a lot of our treatments. HEBO has been uh, FDA approved uh, at present for renal cell carcinoma, uh, hepatocellular carcinoma, and thyroid cancers in adults. Uh, and it's got a long experience now in that population as far as um, the safety and, and uh, tolerability, tolerability profile as well as some uh, how the efficacy looks. And it's being looked at for other uh, adults' cancers as well. Uh, it was studied in uh, the preclinical setting in many uh, pediatric labs and it showed efficacy against many of these tumors as well, against specifically osteosarcoma, neuroblastoma, and Ewing sarcoma in particular. Um, the uh, cabozantinib, unfortunately at this point, is formulated as a pill only, um, but it has a very long half-life and it comes in two dose sizes, 20 milligrams and 60 milligrams. So you can do an alternate day uh, scheduling, uh, and so you can kind of adjust the dose that way. So, for example, you, you, know, you can give the pills to some kids uh, five times a week, um, and that uh, still creates a high enough dose level that it has some benefit in that way. So, uh, so to that end, uh, Cabo then became studied in our pediatric setting, uh, and so uh, Children's Oncology Group um, performed uh, at this point two studies a pediatric phase one and a phase two study of the drug. The phase one identified a safe dose. So this uh, RPC, uh, this is a, a recommended phase two dose. That's what this means, um, of 40 milligrams per meter squared. And again, alternate day dosing of either five times a week, six times a week, or daily allows um, us to kind of modulate that dose based on patient size. Um, and uh, the efficacy results from the phase two study are uh, now, through. Um, uh, they're still coming along the, They've been posted onto clinicaltrials.gov, though it can be a little bit tricky to interpret that sometimes. Um, however, there is very encouraging data in, in uh, including uh, sufficient in osteosarcoma to justify uh, the use of cabozantinib in the current phase three study for newly diagnosed metastatic osteosarcoma as well. So there's definitely a lot of data supporting its use in that way. I came to Cabo, I'll, I'll uh, kind of consolidate down the story. The short version is on a patient with a renal cell carcinoma and this was circa 2014, uh, who uh, had metastatic disease, um, basically progressed through the standards of care at that point. Um, and we were kind of led to the, these new classes of TKIs, put her on the drug, um, and she had a quite dramatic response. Um, she had a, a large effusion, a pulmonary effusion, 
uh, so fluid around the lung, um, uh, wasting away a lot of weight loss, just pain, everything like that. Put her on the drug a month later, the effusion's gone. She regained a bunch of weight, had a good duration of disease control, 17 months. Uh, we had a second patient also with renal cell carcinoma, uh, where because of some alternate, um, dosing strategy we did with that patient, uh, was able to have six years of uh, extended survival, um, and a big chunk of that was all on K-bone. So we were very encouraged by the drug. And seeing that there had been some data in neuroblastoma, we then tried a, a series of our patients in neuroblastoma as well. We had some patients who had active disease, and we had some periods of disease control for them. But in particular, we had a couple of patients where we had been able to get them back into incomplete remission. Uh, but in that same way for the other uh, solid tumors, we know that it can come back. So we put them on uh, the cabozantinib for a period of time. And those patients actually continue to be in remission our longest survivor at this point is well over five years out from uh, his original diagnosis. And so with that, um, we, we were very encouraged by this use. So that time, uh, Exelixis, the company, actually had reached out to me because we published on uh, the experience both in the renal cell carcinoma as well as in our neuroblastoma experience. Uh, and, and between the two papers, they'd reached out and said, hey, we're really excited about what you're doing and we want to be supportive of pediatric patients uh, and how can we work together? And so that led us um, to, to the study. Before I get to our study, uh, there was ongoing work. And uh, so the Italians had performed the study, uh, uh, which they probably pronounced Cabone. Um, the rest of it's called Cabone. Um, the, and so this is a phase two study for patients with active relapse refractory, Ewing sarcoma, and osteosarcoma. So these are what we call waterfall blots. And it really kind of shows you uh, for all the patients, what are their best responses and how many patients are responding in that way. So down is good. These are patients where you're having either stable disease or a shrinkage of the tumor. And we have these uh, these cutoffs here, which kind of help you to define that. And so uh, for the uh, Ewing sarcoma patients here at the top and the osteosarcoma patients, you can see that uh, over half of the Ewing sarcoma patients had uh, extended periods of disease control and some responders as well. And the osteosarcoma patients, similarly, you had uh, uh, over half the patients who had, you know, even going out to here, these patients would be considered stable disease here in the blue. So it's a significant majority of the patients who had disease control. And these are patients who are heavily pretreated, had gone through a lot of chemo, and are using cabozantinib alone against active disease. So if we're seeing a signal against for patients who have active disease, imagine what you could do for patients where you don't have uh, visible disease in that way. And what was really nice is that this, this is an adolescent young adult uh, and some some older adult population, uh, and it gives a better sense of what's the toxicity profile in these patients. And most patients had good tolerability, less than 10% uh, had grade three or grade four toxicities. Those would be the dose levels where you say you have to just kind of adjust some of the dosing. And so, uh, you know, so you had extended disease control and, and good tolerability in this drug. Many of us in, in pediatric oncology uh, uh, you know, we recognize the challenge and we're not a patient people. And so we say, you know, for these kids where we know that something is going to be happening, let's see what can happen. And so many institutions have been trying, uh, uh, anecdotal, uh, use of these, um, drugs. And these have been used kind of off label in that way. Uh, so cabozana, but also other TKAs such as, uh, pizopinib and regorafenib. And some people have tried chemotherapy regimens at a lower dose, kind of a maintenance dose gemcitabine, cyclophosphamide. Uh, but there had been no prior dedicated to say for cabozantinib in the maintenance um, setting. So that led us to our study. Uh, so the cabozantinib protocol, uh, it's a phase two open label, non-randomized clinical trial. It is multi-site. 
So we call it an investigator initiated trial. So we as the physicians are the ones running the study. The company is, is again, very generous in, in funding it, but they are not involved in, uh, in active management of the study itself. And so we're operating it independently in that way. Um, and we hypothesize that using cabozanum in patients with these ultra high risk pediatric solid tumors with minimal disease burden, uh, and I'll kind of go through what that means uh, in a second here, uh, uh, can prevent and or slow recurrence tumor formation and extend the period of disease control and or hopefully induce a, a, a true cure. So our primary objective is to evaluate the benefit of oral daily uh, cabozatinib administered for up to 12 months on that one-year progression-free survival uh, for patients with this ultra-high risk. Or I kind of uh, borrowed this term of ultra-high risk as patients where you have a uh, 25% um, or less uh, one-year uh, disease-free survival. So we found that a lot of these patients are going to rapidly recur in that first year. Um, and the thought process is that if you could, for many of these patients, if, there were, if you were disease-free after that one year, you tended to remain in a remission. So that's why we picked uh, kind of one year as that cutoff there. So we have many secondary objectives. We want to see the effects on one, two, and five-year overall survival as well the effects on two and five year progression free survival. Because again, every pediatric oncologist, we don't want to fix you for now. We want to fix you forever. And we want to keep this kind of in, in control as possible. So we want to monitor that. Uh, we want to evaluate what we call the duration of response. And so this is kind of a continuous variable of how many months do we get out of benefit in that way. And then the safety and uh, tolerability as well as any toxicity for these patients uh, when we uh, the drug is given for up to one year. And then uh, exploratory objectives um, as well. So the original populations, and we'll kind of go through with these strata are, were meant for really those relapse refractory patients. But we identify that again, metastatic Young sarcoma and metastatic osteosarcoma have particularly high challenges. So we have a separate strata for them. Those patients don't, they're a little bit higher than that 25% one year progression-free survival. Their relapses can happen a little bit later. And so we bracketed them out and said, let's look at them at two and five years. And so we're, uh, those are patients who are at uh, at the end of their frontline therapy. So they don't have to wait till they've relapsed or recurred. Um, we can start treating them at the end of the, their frontline therapy. And then... Is this uh, to clarify, uh, Dr. Yeah. Song? Yes. Sorry, just to clarify. So for um, for eligibility, it's, if it's patients who present with metastatic disease at diagnosis? Correct. Or, okay. Yeah. So for this stratum, and I'll go through the stratum here in a second, but yes, for these patients... For you have to have metastatic human sarcoma or metastatic osteosarcoma at diagnosis at frontline. If you when you complete frontline therapy and are in a state of disease control, then you're eligible to enroll. Okay, great. Yep. Um, and we have a number of additional exploratory markers. Uh, we want to, as we said, you know, cabozatinib is is multi-targeted, but we'd like to have some sense of okay, what are the active pathways, and is there something that we can see that says, oh, if you have high levels of this protein in your tumor, CABO may be uh, more uh, beneficial for you. And so we're looking at the original tumor samples, uh, and we'll look at that at the end of the study in a retrospective fashion to see if we see a correlation in that way. Looking to see about routine laboratory markers, both as markers of uh, um, effect of the drug as well as potential benefit of the drug, things like blood counts, thyroid studies, things like that. We will look at the drug levels of the cabozatinib at different points in therapy, including after any dose modifications. And most importantly, 
uh, and I sincerely say that of in, in many ways, is the quality of life. We don't want the treatment to be worse uh, than uh, the, the disease, certainly. Um, and uh, we don't want people to have to kind of bargain away uh, their, their quality of life in that way. So we're uh, evaluating quality of life measures, symptom burden, and other patient-reported outcomes in these patients as well. So inclusion criteria. The inclusion criteria are a little bit different than for most studies. And so first we define, do you have measurable or valuable disease? So measurable disease is something that on a cross-sectional scan, so a CT or an MRI, uh, can we identify it in a measurable way? Uh, and in addition to that, for example, if it's a small lesion, um, but uh, it's been resected or biopsied. So for many of these patients, you have a five millimeter nodule in the lung, right? And so then, you know, if you can define, if you can demonstrate that that's active disease, those patients are going to be eligible as well in this measurable way. Uh, but also some patients have a valuable disease and in particular bony disease, certainly for neuroblastoma, Ewing sarcoma, you can see kind of some of this uh, um, increase in uptake, but uh, it's not a defined lesion in that way. And so for neuroblastoma, if it's uh, uptake on an MIBG schedule, we you know, no, that's disease. Uh, for the other diseases, um, you know, uh, if we can biopsy and confirm that the disease, great, but that's really kind of evidence of a valuable disease in that way. And so they should have had either measurable or valuable disease at the start of their prior line of therapy, or the most recent line of therapy. So they relapse, you see something on the lesion, you get treatment, you complete that treatment, then you come to our study. Okay. You must have completed that prior uh, um, line of therapy, uh, and that includes whatever was involved, surgery, radiation, chemotherapy. We have some patients where, as we know, in osteosarcoma, you might have an isolated lung nodule. If you resect that, you don't need to get additional chemotherapy. You can come to our study in that way. Um, and then uh, you must have completed that therapy, uh, and then we have to get eligible scans Four, and no sooner than four weeks after that treatment, because we want to make sure that you're still in disease control after having completed that last therapy. Um, but you must enroll within 12 weeks of that last therapy, because if we keep waiting, if you're six months out, there's a good chance you might have just stayed in a remission. And that's kind of it'd be biasing the study towards the drug. And we want to be even handed about it. So, And then uh, we do want to enroll you within two weeks of those scans. If let's say that your scans that you uh, did locally were three weeks out from your most recent therapy, because that's when you could schedule it, we can repeat the scans uh, on study through the research protocol uh, after that four-week window just to make sure you're still in remission and enroll you. So it's not like you have to wait. And um, that is built into our budget at this point. If that if we need to repeat those scans for eligibility purposes, we can get one set of scans on us. So. And uh, um, Dr. Saw, for the, um, oh, sorry, Dr. Saw, it's yeah. for the um, time since the other, like, surgery or radiation. Can you talk a little bit about what the watch-out period or how, like, how much time it needs to pass since the yeah. surgery or radiation? Right. So that's where this four weeks is. So um, whatever your last therapy was, whether it was the surgery, radiation, or chemotherapy, uh, it sh you should have... Um, uh, that washout period is four weeks. Um, okay. And so, uh, um, and again, it's whichever was last, that is when the clock starts. 
So I know that some patients, you know, they'll complete with whole lung radiation and it's at the end of the radiation. That's when your clock has started, not from the end of, ke of the chemotherapy. Um, that kind right. of thing. Okay. Um, to enroll, you don't have to uh, have visible disease. You can be in a complete remission. You can be in a partial remission or you can be in stable disease. You simply must not show progression from uh, the end of therapy. And so if you have a scan that was like, you know, uh, middle of your treatment course, uh, as you would normally uh, be obtained, so like two or three cycles in, and then you get those scans four weeks out from the end of therapy, as long as you're not progressing, then we you're under a state of disease control and you're eligible to enroll. So you don't need visible disease. So many studies that have um, treatment for relapse refractory disease, you have to have a visible lesion because you're trying to shrink it. That's not us. But you also don't need to be in a complete response. You don't have to have no disease because we know that, for example, many times you have the tumor irradiated and you, uh, it just, it's always going to be there um, in that way. Um, and again, you know, reasonable expectations for some patients, you know, durable disease control is, is a reasonable kind of first step in that way. So uh, that's why we use this term best response. Okay. Um, you cannot have previously received KBOZAD, um, just cause it, it, uh, will kind of alter our ability to evaluate. Um, if the drugs had a chance to seek KBO, it could have adapted to it. So patients do have to be able to swallow pills. Uh, unfortunately, um, we aren't able to compound this into a liquid on the study. Uh, and then more broadly, they must have, re um, recovered from prior therapy. And there's many details that are related to that. Uh, for those who, who are kind of in the know. Uh, we do require an ANC of a thousand and a platelet count of a hundred thousand to start therapy. Um, and you, those must be unassisted. So, uh, you must be a reasonable amount of time since any transfusions and you cannot have received new Lasta or Pegfilgrastum within a couple of weeks. Um, and then you uh, cannot, patients? I'm sorry. Well, sorry, I was just going to ask if patients can have taken a different, uh, MPKI. Yes. Or so they could have been on? on, they could have been on Bezo. They could have been on Rego. They can have been on any of the other TKs. They simply cannot have been on Kibozak. Okay, great. Good question. Yep. Um, and then uh, you always have good end organ function, reasonable kidneys, reasonable um, uh, cardiac function, things like that. This is a, a drug that's metabolized by the liver. It's through the CYP3A4 um, pathway. And so we do look for uh, cross reactions um, for your drug list in that regard. And you shouldn't have been off of any CYP3A4 um, uh, significant inhibitors or our stimulators within two weeks. Um, and so that's why we do say, you know, before you, um, we start that conversation early and, uh, we will kind of make those recommendations of, you know, these drugs probably need to, uh, have alternatives identified. So for example, um, we, uh, if you have to be in an antihypertensive, we do not prefer calcium child blockers. Um, we, we would say avoid amlodipine. Um, but the ACE inhibitors and uh, the ARB inhibitors are um, very safe and reasonable. So we have many patients who get switched over to like lisinopril or enalapril. Okay, so our three strata for this study. First of all is neuroblastoma. If you have residual active disease, uh, meaning by biopsy you can see it's a viable disease, but it's not progressive, um, then at the end of frontline therapy, those patients are eligible for study. The majority of patients for the neuroblastoma, we're going to be expecting those who are in the relapse refractory setting. So after second line of therapy or later. So, um, and we can always discuss for each individual patient, of kind of like 
what does refractory mean and how much of a modulation? So in, in our setting, uh, refractory means you got to treat, start in treatment. You actually progressed and needed a second therapy. And then if we got you back in a remission, then you're fine. In neurolestin, we do a lot of, uh, um, uh, risk adaptive therapy. So maybe you didn't respond as well as we like, and we put you onto a new regimen that doesn't count as refractory. So. Um, for the sarcomas, we have three, uh, two groups. 3A was the original kind of cohort. And these are your relapse refractory um, patients. So uh, best response after second line of therapy or later. Um, and uh, uh, so Ewing sarcoma, osteosarcoma, and, as well as a number of other sarcomas. And then arrived by sarcomas uh, um, with positive surgical margins, uh, kind of those higher risk factors, they are eligible on this stratum uh, at the end of frontline therapy. But then we have the the exploratory cohort, the three B, and these are the frontline um, bone sarcomas in particular. Any metastatic osteosarcomas who've ended frontline therapy and are in disease control, you're eligible. And metastatic Ewing sarcomas who weren't able to undergo a complete metastatectomy. Um, and so those patients, again, who also, who also couldn't have received a, a complete primary resection in that cohort. You have to have been metastatic, but if we couldn't get it all out, you're eligible at the end of frontline therapy. Treatment is straightforward. Um, you take the pill um, orally once a day uh, on an empty stomach. It does have to be in an empty stomach. Um, and so we say no food two hours before, one hour after. Um, for some of our patients, that means they uh, kind of wake up first thing in the morning, pop their med, uh, get ready for the day, and then they're ready for breakfast. Uh, we have a couple of kids who set two alarms. Their first alarm is their pill alarm. They go back to bed and then they, they wake up for the day. <laughs> um, and then our dosing nomogram is based on body surface area. Uh, so some kids will get five times a week, six times a week or, um, or daily. And there are two uh, um, uh, pill formulations, 20s and 60s. We do plateau at a dose of 60 milligrams orally once daily. That's a recommended adult max dose um, and uh, is um, what's being used in most of the studies going forward. So we treat for um, till progression, toxicity, or up to one year. Um, we picked one year for a few different reasons. Um, from a scientific perspective, we needed kind of a benchmark. Unlike a protocol with active disease where you're saying, okay, we can keep an eye on is there progression um, here because, you know, you might be in a complete response. Second, um, treatment fatigue. Um, we kind of, you know, had a sense of, you know, there are many patients and families who may want to be treated, you know, ad nauseum. But there's some who, you know, more reasonably might say, look, okay, we got to be done at some point. Um, and uh, to some degree, it's also uh, uh, a mechanistic thing. Prolonged exposures to TKIs have been associated with um, uh, 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 resistance. Um, We're not studying it in this study, uh, but in our anecdotal experience, we had patients where you, know, you treat for a year, you pause. And then if you see the disease progression after some period of time, you can restart them and they're still sensitive to the drug. And so that salvages the 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 um, function of the drug. So, um, I was actually just going to ask about that, yeah. Dr. Shaw, uh, kind of the anecdotal um, story that you shared uh, at the beginning where you had patients that were uh, on Cabo and disease-free for many years. I think you mentioned one with up to five years. I was just curious if they had been on Cabo for that whole time or or like you said did they were they were on it and then maybe might have progressed and then just took it again took a break and then took it again or how did that work 
We saw a couple of inversions of that. With the neuroblastoma patients, luckily we've we've been able to just treat for a finite period and then they stay in a remission. And those are patients who are kind of in a complete response, uh, a complete response to uh, when we started it. The, um, the, the second renal cell carcinoma patient in particular, the, he's one where we treated for about a year, we paused, um, and then he had progression about a year after that. Uh, and then we restarted CAPO and we were able to, to put him back into remission, had disease control at that point again. Um, and at that point he kind of stayed on it. Uh, and then, uh, he did eventually become resistant to that line of therapy. Uh, but then we moved on to a different one and kind of hopscotching around in that way. We're able to get an extended disease control. So, um, again, unfortunately a little bit too broad for the purposes of this study, but hopefully down the road, we can get some more data there. So for visits, uh, we really wanted to kind of minimize the burden on the families. And so we have patients come at baseline. Um, and so, uh, usually they come, we kind of get consent, get baseline screening, make sure everything looks okay, and then start, um, pretty promptly within there. So usually within two to the baseline to, to start is usually two to three days. So we generally kept that as well. Visit. We do see you eight, uh, one week after that. So we want to watch for any kind of hyperacute side effects. Uh, and there's some research labs at this point as well. Then we see you at day, uh, 29, so four weeks out. Day 57, so the another four weeks out, and then day 85. Another, so this is now 12 weeks out. At that point, if you're remaining in disease control, and we'll talk about kind of the evaluations here in a second, we space out your visit. So then we only see you every 12 weeks. So 12 weeks, 12 weeks. And then this last block is actually 16 weeks out uh, because just we didn't want to see you 12 weeks, then a month later or so. Um, and then we see one last visit 90 days after therapy, plus or minus 30 days just to kind of demonstrate that side effects have re resolved and uh, to evaluate if we're still in disease control. This day 365 is obviously the bright light for us for our primary objective. So depending on how do you do that, uh, the day one and day eight, um, it's about eight to nine total visits um, that, that are uh, required for the study. So and the rest of the time, we really try to manage as an outpatient um, using your local team. I view us as your consulting oncologists and your primary team is still your primary team. We would like to very much partner with those physicians as much as we can. So just want to make sure we're okay for time. All right. Um, we have uh, three optional research labs. Um, we get some pharmacokinetic studies, something called CTDNA. And so uh, I think this has been discussed in prior uh, um, osteobites. And so blood samples looking for circulating evidence of any cancer cells. And, and instead of looking for the actual cells, we're looking for any of the DNA from the cancer cells. And so we're doing, and then uh, we're collecting one additional tube that is just a plasma banking because we know there will be questions. We just don't know what those questions are. So um, those are at the first four visits. Um, and then if at any point we do a dose reduction, we get an additional PK value at the next scheduled visit. We don't make an additional visit just for that PK, just at the scheduled. So um, all this will be done in uh, a retrospective fashion. So we're banking it all at the end of the study. So it's not something that will adjust therapy um, based on this, but it will help us with, with analysis at the end. So uh, scans are kind of at each of those 12 week points, the day 85, the 169, the 253, and the end of therapy. Um, and those can be done at the home institution. They do not have to be done at a study site. Um, and then again, this is why we define the measurable or the value. For neuroblastoma, it's a very standard of care to, to do MIBG scans as well as cross-sectional scans, MRI or CT. For sarcomas, we recognize that the PET-CTs 
are not necessarily standard of care and in particular can be hard for insurance to cover. And so we try to be flexible to standard of care in that way. Um, we do send everyone home with a patient diary. We want to see kind of like what your compliance is. And then the patient um, reported outcomes surveys. You do those when you come to us. It takes about 10 minutes, either digitally or on paper. We have two survey uh, systems, the Memorial Sloan uh, um, uh, survey and then the PEDS-QL. And these are both validated markers in that way. And for our kids who are under 18, we get surveys on the kids as well as on from their parents. For the kids who are above 18, um, we, we simply survey the, the patient themselves. Can you tell us a little bit more about the patient diary? Because I think that's an uh, interesting aspect. Is it just, and is it for the patient, the caregiver? Is it just like fill in the blank? Um, so it's interesting you say that because that's actually something that's evolved a little bit through the course of the study. The first iteration was simply, here's your list of, you know, a, a, a slot for each dose. Um, and you just tell us what time of day you took it and make sure you took it. Um, but we expanded that out a little bit because we had this line next to it that families were filling a lot of useful information into. <laughs> um, and as we go through the toxicities, you'll kind of see a little bit of, of why that is. Um, so we've kind of uh, um, made that a little bit more regimented in that way. So these are hard copy. Um, and so you can kind of more easily mark off which supportive care drug you needed. But there's still that blank line. And we have a kind of a lot of nuance there that families are providing on like today was a bad day. Or, you know, it happened an hour after the drug or uh, we, we have one patient in particular who likes, likes to tell us about in relation to his meals and where he went to eat and things like that. So um, we're like, OK, that's a lot of detail, but we'll take it. So, um, you know, whatever it's, it's, you know, I think many of these types of oral drug studies will have a, some type of patient diary, but we try to make it actually a, 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 a a useful way to collect a lot of the soft data. I think that's great you're doing that. Yeah. Um, okay, so toxicity. So uh, diarrhea. So many of these TKAs can induce the, um, diarrhea. And the thought here is that it's activation of some of these um, pathways, particularly like MET. Um, and what's basically happening is that the, the colon is not um, being able to resorb that water as well as possible. So we manage this. Uh, all of our patients here uh, that we're starting, we automatically prescribe Imodium and just kind of slowing it down or resorbing. Uh, and then we have some patients where we've barred from the uh, IBS um, experience and using uh, Lamodal now, um, but still the same idea of kind of really just trying to slow down uh, the release in that way. Um, many patients were able to manage this um, with uh, without a dose reduction, but we have some patients where we do dose reduction. I didn't talk about this earlier. The, the recommended phase two dose was 40 milligrams per meter squared. But when you look at that phase one data, the dose, uh, the, the pharmacokinetics, the amount of drug that was in the concentration of the blood um, was pretty similar at one dose level above as well as one dose level below. And from the adult experience for patients with renal cell and hepatic, uh, hepatic cellular carcinoma, they found that if you can, if you dose reduce one dose level, many of these patients still have ongoing benefit in that way. So there's a reasonable expectation that that one dose level reduction um, can still have benefit for these patients. Now, we don't know that for certain. That's why we're doing the study. But we do offer for many of these um, uh, side effects uh, that we can reduce the dose uh, in a reasonable way. We allow for two dose reductions. And after that, you do have to come off treatment um, because we just feel like at that point, we're not getting a reasonable 
we're not getting a dose of drug into you that has any reasonable expectation of benefit. So, um, but many of these toxicities, uh, you can manage either without uh, a dose reduction or if uh, in conversation with the family who feel like dose reduction makes sense, we do that. Um, there are safety parameters. So if you, if you break a certain safety parameter, we do have to pause your treatment, let that toxicity improve, and then we restart. But if it's a tolerability thing, if it's just like it's a nuisance, this is just more diarrhea than, than we're comfortable with, we can just go right to a dose reduction. We don't necessarily have to pause before we uh, continue treatment. So, um, The diarrhea is also widely very hard to predict. Um, we have some patients who have nothing at all. We have some patients who just have a loose stool once a week. We have some patients where it's it's more significant. If you have pre-existing GI issues, those seem to be the patients who are more sensitive in this way. Um, anorexia slash early satiety. The kids just get full earlier. Um, I have one family where uh, the mom said, you know, he used to house a, a, a happy meal and now, you know, he gets two chicken nuggets and he's and he's full. And so uh, we do want to keep a very close eye on this. Uh, and oftentimes we'll use appetite stimulants, uh, periactin, uh, marinol, megase. Um, and uh, megase makes everyone hungry. So um, we can we can always use that as needed. Um, the, and so we want to keep an eye that patients aren't losing significant amount of weight in that way. It's not necessarily persistent nausea. It really, in most patients is the kind of that, uh, just early sense of fullness. Um, the other thing we want to keep in mind is with regards to effects on thyroid, and I'll get back to that in a second. Most patients were able to do this with supportive care without having to do a dose adjustment. So a smaller percentage of patients will have some nausea. And again, we use Zofran and we prescribe everyone, uh, Zofran from the start as well. Then there's power plants for erythrodesseizure, or PPE, hand foot syndrome. Um, what's happening here is that the cable is causing a vascular squeeze um, and uh, and it's just kind of uh, decreasing the amount of blood supply to that surface layer of the skin. And what you find are the high traction areas, so kind of the the uh, pads and on um, the pads and, and palms of your hands, uh, the pads of your uh, the soles of your feet, and oftentimes around the uh, the nail beds as well. First, it starts with the peeling. If not controlled, it becomes inflamed. Um, and so for that, we prescribe urea cream. It's an emollient. So you're really trying to get rid of all that dead skin and let the healthy skin. That, what happens is the healthy skin grows in underneath because it's been exposed to the cabozantinib. It knows a level of blood supply to expect and usually is, is tolerating it there. So, And then we may or may not use a topical steroid. If there's inflammation that's going on, we try to just kind of calm that inflammation. Some patients may have a little bit of a tingly pain with it as well. Uh, and so every so often we have to um, prescribe some gabapentin. Uh, we've had a lot of patients where about three to four months in, uh, once that dead skin is kind of sloughed off, that new skin has come in and then there, and then the PPU resolves and it doesn't recur necessarily. So not every patient, but a lot of patients, they're not necessarily condemned to that level of, of side effect all the way through. I will say the diarrhea, you kind of get to a plateau about a month or two in. Uh, for most patients, then you stay there. Some patients, it's a little bit more kind of this thing we adjust as we go. Similarly, that early satiety, about a couple of months in, you know where you're going to be. It doesn't necessarily get worse as you go in, but you have to be proactive in managing it. The PPE is unique in that it, oftentimes it will resolve uh, after a few months. And then uh, thyroid. It causes this disjunction between the hypothalamus pituitary and the thyroid gland itself. So what you see at first is that the thyroid is continuing to put out normal levels of thyroid hormone, free T4, uh, but the TSH starts to rise. 
we use that kind of a little bit of a proxy of like, okay, drugs getting in. And then uh, if you're asymptomatic and your TSH is mildly elevated, we just kind of watch and see. Once in the protocol, we say if it breaks 30 or if you're symptomatic, even if your free T4 is okay, but you're clinically symptomatic, myalgias, uh, effect on appetite, um, or uh, sensation of cold, things like that, we do recommend some thyroid replacement. I would say majority of patients have to go on some degree of thyroid replacement. The majority of patients are able to discontinue that at the end of treatment as well. We do recommend getting endocrinology involved to help you with kind of tapering off in that way. Um, but it is a very manageable um, uh, uh, side effect profile there. So, And again, generally, we don't have to dose reduce based on that. Um, the myologists uh, have been associated with TKIs in general. Um, I would say the majority of our patients, when we put them in that thyroid replacement, their myologists improve significantly. And we do supportive care things, physical therapy, massage, analgesia. Uh, we do want to watch for hypertension. Again, all these are causing vascular squeeze and that extra pressure on the kidneys um, uh, can both cause hypertension as well as proteinuria. So we keep a very close eye on that. And what we do is recommend to some patients to start an ACE inhibitor again uh, to prevent driving you into uh, um, uh, proteinuria and having uh, other complications. We see a generally a mild bump in the LFTs. The LT goes up a little bit not an effect in uh, liver function and uh, um, resolves at the end of three months. We monitor for effects on growth plates. Um, the early studies showed, uh, this is a preclinical study show, you know, a theoretical impact on the growth plates in, in animals. Uh, in the pediatric population, they said that there was some widening of the growth plates in some of these patients, but it didn't affect their longitudinal growth. So they still grew well. We're collecting that data. I want to make sure there aren't any complications there. As I mentioned before, you do want to avoid CYP3A4 affecting drugs. Uh, interestingly, um, uh, THC, uh, Marinol, uh, is not a CYP3A4 uh, metabolized drug, but CBD, cannabidiol, is CYP3A4. So if that's a drug that's available in your state, you do want to avoid that for our study purposes. So, And there's a list of other drugs as well. And the other key thing here is uh, impaired wound healing. Um, and so we do want to make sure you're healed up well from any prior surgeries. Major surgeries... You had to have been a month out from that prior surgery for port removals because that will still impact healing. We strongly encourage that if you want to go on the study, either have the port removed at least one week prior to enrollment or leave the port in through the treatment. And we understand that some patients will just want to leave it in and that's totally fine and reasonable, but we want to avoid a dehiscence after that surgical uh, removal of the port. So you have to be a week out from your port replacement or removal or other stuff. If you're interested, um, this is our email, kbomain at nationwidechildrens.org, and that comes to our team, including me. Uh, here's a barcode um, that, or QR code that will uh, uh, get you there as well. We do need to communicate with your primary oncologist because there are many of the records, of the tr prior treatment records that we need to get. We are open at present at Nationwide Children's, and I am proud to say um, uh, the University of Alabama, Birmingham, is also open at this point. We are very, very soon opening at Primary Children's in Utah as well. Um, and so they probably will be opening in the next couple of weeks. We've we've gone through, we're just waiting for a couple of checks there. And then we're planning to open at Children's National Medical Center in D.C. as well. And they're in that process. And Children's Hospital of Colorado. And we have uh, one or two additional sites that, that were uh, earlier in that process. So even for when you have to travel, we like I said, we, we're really trying to make this as minimal impact on the families as possible. Um, we do have, uh, we don't have dedicated funding for travel in that way. 
Um, we do have the uh, the nation's largest Ronald McDonald House literally across the street. Um, and oftentimes you're able to support uh, housing in that way. And we, our social workers, will work with your families uh, to uh, uh, to offer support where we can. Um, there are a couple um, uh, travel uh, charities as well um, that uh, have been able to help many of our families. Um, and sometimes you're, uh, particularly for those patients who are on, uh, um, uh, I think they stopped calling it SHIP, the, the Children's Health Programs. Sometimes we've been able to have uh, the insurance actually cover some of the travel costs as well. So kind of explore what opportunities are there. So I think um, just one last kind of uh, do need to say this for comprehensiveness. All patients will need to undergo complete screening for inclusion and exclusion criteria prior to determining eligibility for the study prior to enrollment. And all patients will need to provide informed consent to enroll in the study. Additionally, patients nine years or older will also need to provide um, assent. Uh, for ethical purposes. And with that, I'm happy to take uh, any and all questions. Yes. Thank you so much. That was such a great overview. Um, and I think we did have um, some questions uh, that Walker was going to share that came in. Yeah. Yeah. So one question is, what are good treatment options if resistance to uh, and develops besides a pause and restart of treatment? Is cabozan um, resistance and osteosarcoma usually due to a particular mutation like RET V804X gatekeeper mutation? That's a fantastic question. Um, the short answer is we don't know. Um, the the Cabone study is probably the largest cohort of patients where um uh we kind of were able to kind of quantify um effect uh and benefit uh for for the patients um and i know that those studies are ongoing there preclinically we uh those studies still honestly haven't been done yet to really identify correlation with necessarily one mutation or another um you know while we think that met is the major active pathway that uh chemo is affecting in osteosarcoma um, it is undoubtedly a multi-target effect. And particularly as we know more and more about tumor microenvironment, not only the effects of KBO on the tumor microenvironment, but also the role of microenvironment in osteo, uh, we're going to find more and more. Um, so I don't have a precise answer for you with regards to the mechanism of resistance in that way, uh, because KBO is such a, uh, a polytargeting, uh, multi-targeting uh, drug in that way. Um, as far as next treatments after that, um, you know, that's that's really such a big question. I wish that I had Dr. Bubinacetti here in the office with me um, because, uh, you know, frankly, I think that if if you guys are in the right place and mindset uh, and, and able to get to uh, an academic center, which have uh, more of the uh, the clinical trials available, um, that's probably a reasonable approach. I will give a shout out to uh, Dr. Seti's protocol, which is the uh, the Tinks protocol. And for that, we're using uh, natural killer cell infusions alongside with chemotherapy. Uh, those are for patients with active disease. Um, and so uh, uh, the thought there is, again, going after that tumor microenvironment and trying to kind of undo that shield. Uh, I, I talk a lot about it as because uh, tumor microenvironment is, is a big focus for me um, from, a, from a conceptual standpoint. And it's a lot like the Death Star. And so the Death Star has the shields up and your bombers can't get in while the shields are up. So you got to send a small troop in there, take the shields down, then your other treatment works. And that's really the rationale 
for these uh, tumor microbiome approaches. And so that's what the thought is of these natural killer cells that by help, helping to dismantle that preventive, that pr uh, protective uh, tumor microbiome that came out with Kenmore. Uh, that is one example of many um, uh, studies that that are either active or planned. Um, but I would, I would recommend having that conversation with uh, either your primary oncologist or finding an appropriate referral site. Gotcha. And then there was a, there was one more question. Someone asked, can one see the normogram for dosing? Um, you're welcome. Uh, give me a second. <laughs> um, it's funny that you say that because I had it up earlier today and then I didn't have it up. Um, While you're looking that up, Dr. Shaw, could you also talk about, do you, have you seen a pneumothorax um, be a... So we saw one, we did see one patient who had a, uh, a pneumothorax. Now that patient had her pneumothorax after, um, uh, I forget which, it was not COVID, but she it was after a viral infection. Um, and so it's not listed on the um uh expected toxicity profile uh and uh, the kaboni study did not have patients with with a novothorax hers was not symptomatic and resolved spontaneously while she continued drug so we did not think it was attributable to the drug in that way um the uh in in kind of a parallel conversation um while we're not allowing concurrent radiation therapy with the cabozatinib, um, you know, off-label, um, there have been certainly a number of reports of, of cases of patients who have been able to tolerate that combination. Um, and so it's, I think it's, it's reasonable. Uh, in that uh, the... Um, and Walker, maybe we can tackle that other question that came in while Dr. Shaw's looking for that nervogram. Yeah, the other question is, able to stop for a month or so, is there a strong risk of quick progression? Um, we have had a couple of patients where we've had to do a pause for up to 28 days, and none of those patients have progressed during that time. Um, the N is small. We've been, we opened officially for enrollment in January of 2022. Uh, there's always time for uh, uptick, getting uh, patients and things like that. So our first patient was enrolled in July of 2022. So you, we've been open effectively, you know, had patients uh, for a little bit over a year. We have had um, uh, three patients who have fully completed their year of therapy. Um, and so uh, we, we do have some, you know, and we have a number of patients who continue on study as well. So we do have some data there, but we haven't necessarily seen that during that period, that brief break, if you have to pause any, uh, any progressions during that time. Um, we have had some patients who have progressed well in therapy as unfortunately would be expected. Um, you know, this is why we do the study and, and we do know that, uh, the cancers have, um, a head start on us. They've got numbers on us, but we're trying to identify from which patients will see some benefits in that way. Um, let me, sorry. Um, and I was going to say that to Sal, if you send me a link to the, um, the dosing thing, I can always send that out as well with the notes. 
I would have to figure out how to do that because it wasn't specifically included in the uh, slides that we shared with the IRB. So I don't know um, what I'm allowed to necessarily do. Can you see the table there? Yeah. Or are you, okay. So you can see kind of the notes. So we go down to 0.35 meter uh, um, meter squared. Um, and so it can range from 20 milligrams five times a week to uh, up to that just 60 milligrams uh, daily. Um, but that's the schema. So uh, no, uh, we have one level where it's four times a week kind of for the, the particularly smaller kids. Most of our patients have been kind of this level and up. And then I will show you, I do feel comfortable showing the dose reduction here. Um, and so, for example, if you uh, were starting at 60 milligrams daily, we step you down to, to five times a week. Um, and uh, it's kind of adjusting. And this was created in, in consultation with the uh, the company to, to have their guidance and experience. Um, great. We're almost at the top of the hour, but I did want to squeeze in um, another question, which is, like, I whenever I think of, um, you know, TKIs and how they work, right, I think of them as more, um, I think you mentioned this in the beginning, that they're more kind of blocking growth um, as opposed to chemo, which is cytotoxic and actually killing cells. And so that's why kind of trying this where it's, um, you know, whether it's minimal disease or no disease, um, so that can kind of be more effective because it's more preventing growth as opposed to killing what's already there. Um, yep. So um, you had mentioned, like, if you have stable disease or partial disease, you could still enroll in the study. And so I'm wondering if there's, it, are there some guidelines around, like, how much disease you can have? Um the as long as it's controlled, as long as you haven't had progression from the end of your prior treatment, um, no, um, you can have as little or as extensive disease as this kind of not impacting uh, your other eligibility criteria. As long as you're in a reasonable state of of health in that regard and um, your performance score and things like that, then that's manageable. Obviously, um, what I like to do for for all the patients and um, that are, are interested, whether they're self-refer or via their doctors, um, is trying to have a conversation with them and their doctor before they come uh, for kind of reasonable expectations um, and then kind of make sure that they have a full understanding of both what to expect from the study as well as kind of like um, uh, from, from both a scientific standpoint, but also from a, a kind of uh, does it match their goals uh, at this point in their their health journey? Um, and I'm happy to do that. That's why we have the the email and the, and the communication on that way. So. Great. And Walker, we did get one more um, really good question in that would be great to get to before we close out. Yeah, so this last question asks, how long do you expect this trial to be open to fill all spots? Uh, you're wanting. Would someone qualify for the study at silver maintenance if they we did the listeria immunotherapy and are still disease free? Um, there. So I said this everyone. There's no reason why they shouldn't be eligible for uh, enrollment if they with the listeria study. It is the question of. Uh, it's been a little while since I've seen the the criteria for the listeria study. Um, the they have to have had a period of of disease so if they if they completed frontline therapy went on to a maintenance regimen and then remain disease free they're not eligible for our study 
um, because then it's that maintenance therapy isn't part of like their their original treatment study. We don't want patients who are hopscotching for maintenance study and maintenance study because that becomes a question of like, okay, what are we actually controlling? Um, the but if the Listeri study was for active disease, you know, and then they went into remission, then they can come to us absolutely. So, um, as far as duration of, uh, you know, will um, we have um, for each of the strata, we have a slightly different number. Um, we're enrolling a total of 86 patients. It's about 35 for the neuroblastoma, about a similar number for that stratum A. Uh, actually, slightly lower for the stratum A. Um, it's right around 30, and then uh, kind of the balance into that stratum B. Um, based on our enrollment rates, um, and once we open a, kind of the, all the sites, we're expecting about three years, three to four years of um, being open at this point. There will be a, a pause um, for each of those strata. Uh, we're following what we call a, uh, a Bayesian approach. So um, depending on, on um, uh, how many patients we've enrolled and how many have met our primary aim, we may either have to pause to get more patients enrolled or proceed on. So it's not like a fixed stop like some studies do. But um, there will be that caveat of like there may be a patient who at some point contacts us and we say, I'm sorry, we're just not enrolling to that stratum at this moment. We hope to keep that as, as short as possible, but that's all it's statistics. <laughs> um, and again, um, you know, we're open, we're really hoping to, to get all of our sites open as quickly as possible, um, uh, to, to get as many of the patients on as quickly as possible. Great. Well, this is super, this is, thank you for the detailed overview. And, um, it's really exciting to have a maintenance therapy trial, um, in place because you know i think um particularly for high risk i think oftentimes you're just kind of feel like you're waiting around um and and you know and it's so much better to feel like you're on the offensive versus um always on the defensive so um thank you so much for spearheading this study um and thank you for joining us on osteobites today and for making it better for pediatric cancer patients and more information on this and all osteobites can be found on our mid agents youtube channel on our website at midagents.org and at your favorite podcast place. And Osteobytes is off for the next couple of weeks. Um, if you're going to be at CTOS, we hope to see you there. And um, we have a new episode of Osteo, which is our AYA podcast, dropping on November 16th. Camille and Nia are going to be talking about long-term, we're actually going to be talking with uh, uh, long-term osteosarcoma survivors and asking them about where they were and where they are now. And then we'll be back with Osteobites on November 30th with Dr. Ming Lee, who is an immunologist. I cannot say words today. Immunologist at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. Dr. Lee studies mechanisms of immune regulation and their relevance to diseases, including cancer. And he's going to join us on Osteobites to discuss discrete classes of tumor-elicited immunity and tolerance responses, which supports cancer immunology as a new discipline that transcends the classical self versus non-self doctrine with the underlying molecular and cellular circuitries exploitable for cancer therapies. You can find our Osteobites lineup for the next few months on our website. And if you have any ideas for future episodes that you'd like to hear about, please share them with us at events at mitagents.org. Thank you again, Dr. Shaw, and thank you to Walker and for all of you for spending an hour with us today. And we hope to see you back here on Osteobites when we talk with Dr. Ming Lee on November 30th. Thanks, everyone. <laughs>